0: You've tuned into Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. We're going to transport you off to Africa on today's show. No immunizations required. Fasten your sofa seat belts and listen up. Our guests today are two individuals who have mandated to themselves to protect and save primarily two particular species in Africa painted dogs and lions from extinction in the wild. And in doing so, their work has profound consequences for the local and international community and urges us to rethink the way we are treating our predators. We chat with John Lemon, chairman of the Painted Dog Conservation Group. Along with their remarkable spotted bodies and very large ears, I quote Ange Lemon here, the Painted Dog is the most social and caring of the carnivores but also is Africa's most persecuted. Unlike others, the pack feeds their young first, and they also care for their weak, sick and injured members as well. What's not to love there? The remarkable painted dog quickly trumped the attention of John, who had worked many years in zoos with countless species. John and his wife Ange quickly changed their life completely and dedicated it to raising awareness and gaining more protections for the painted dog. Equaled in passion for environmental work in Africa is Kevin Richardson. In his campaign against canned hunting, Kevin is informing us, as a tourist when you go to South Africa, it is understandably very easy to be seduced into grabbing that photo opportunity, petting an adorable lion cub, but in doing so, we may very well be stroking the hand that feeds a thoroughly cruel industry The line and the painted dog have brought together Kevin Richardson and John Lemon to collaborate on a fundraising cross-speaking tour to be held in Perth on June the 15th, Sydney on the Wednesday of that week and Melbourne on the 19th of June You are listening to 3CR 855 AM Freedom of Species We will now go to our first interview with John Lemon Thanks for making time for Freedom of Species today, John.
2: No, no problem. Pleasure.
0: Can we go back before the painted dog chapter in your life and tell us what you were doing before you established the Painted Dog Conservation Group?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, Emma, I've been involved obviously in the zoo industry in Australia for going on 27 years and obviously through that career it's been quite varied and one of my passions was the African painted dog and the captive husbandry and breeding of them and through that I learnt more about their plight in Africa and then I guess promised myself and the species that I'd try and do more for them in the wild and through that I was lucky enough to win a zoo friend fellowship to go to Zimbabwe initially to work with them in the wild. I then felt you know, the passion so strongly that I quit my job when I was at the top of my game and built the largest rehabilitation centre anywhere in the world for painted dogs in Zimbabwe. And from there, obviously, needed to do more as far as the finances. So started up our own not-for-profit called Painted Dog Conservation Incorporated in 2003. And I guess, yeah, is history from there.
0: What position does the painted dog actually have in the environment over there?
2: Okay, the... Painted dogs isn't one of the apex predators. You know that if the painted dogs are in good numbers that the rest of the environment and the ecology is quite well balanced. And, you know, they will take out all the sick and injured prey in the area. If the dogs are in good numbers, it means, yeah, there's a relatively good balance. So it's a good litmus test to see exactly how healthy the ecosystem is. And, you know, being you know one of the most social, caring, carnivores in the world you know, you know they have that real appeal to myself and many others as well but as i said yeah they're basically at the top of the game they are always in obviously conflict with other predators such as lion and hyena particularly areas where they manage areas or wildlife systems you know they can get an unbalance so fencing and considering they do disperse and have a very large home range anywhere from 350 to 750 square kilometres, can, it can be very detrimental to the dogs. So, uh, as I said, if they're in good numbers, you know that everything's pretty much in balance.
0: Tell us some of the challenges that the painted dog populations are up against.
2: Sure. The painted dog, obviously, there's a lot of threat to mankind, so obviously the fencing stops dispersal. Um, they're run over by motor vehicles because they have such a large home range and often cross roads. The farmers see them as a threat to their livestock, even though less than 1% through our research has been attributed to livestock kills.
0: Can you go a little bit more into the research that you did there?
2: Yeah, sure. Obviously, we're looking at tracking daily what the dogs were eating and even in these sort of conflict areas where they verge on farmlands. And we noticed in areas where farmers weren't managing their livestock, they can actually get you know, some of their livestock taken by predators, and that includes lion, hyena, leopard, and often you know, it's always the dogs that seem to get the blame. When you look down and break down, we actually go down to, to, to the base level and even look in the faeces of the animal and take out the hairs, and we can do cross-sections and scale patterns and actually see what they're eating. And through that you know, intensive research, we found that less than 1% uh, was livestock kills often when you drill down to the farmers exactly, you know, did you see the dogs or take down the animal, you know, or even looking at some of the indicators of what killed the animal often doesn't point to the dog. It's just, you know, they're often blamed for the sort they've seen in the area passing through. And, you know, they are a very, very successful land predator. You know, nine out of every 10 chases ends in a kill. So, you know, they attribute it to you know, the African painted dog. But as I said, we can get right down in, in, in basically CSI, I guess, looking at what the dogs have eaten through their faeces and, and can tell that, no, no, that's a kudu or an impala, definitely not domestic cow or goat or sheep. So we've done a lot of that research.
0: And what other challenges are there facing the painted dogs?
2: Farmers shoot them, crossing roads are road accident victims. They can get domestic dog diseases, so rabies, parvovirus and distemper. You know, natural competition, so what we call kleptoparasitism, so lion and hyena will steal their kills and take their food away from them, but lion and hyena have been arch enemies since day one, and they can lose numbers through that. But one of the biggest issues for the dogs is poaching, and that's accidental bycatch through poaching, where snares are set for plains games animals. The trouble is the dog follows the same pathways as the plains games, water holes, and, and, you know targeted areas and it'll only take one or two of the older alpha animals to be taken out and the whole population can crash because the older ones have to support the puppies that are coming through and they're not really honed in their hunting skills until around 18 months of age so they can still be quite dependent on the older ones showing them the tricks of the trade so you know it only takes a few and yeah you can lose a whole population and and poaching is a big issue.
0: (music) You are tuned into to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. We are chatting with John Lemon, Chairman of the Painted Dog Conservation Group, who are about to partake in a speaking tour with Kevin Richardson, the week June 15th to 19th. Take us through what work Painted Dog Conservation actually does, what you execute and how it's implemented.
2: Sure. Through Painted Dog Conservation we support several projects. So we support two projects in Zimbabwe. Also in Zambia, we have a multifaceted project doing uh, research, education, and anti-poaching. And in the past, we've also had field projects in Namibia doing, you know, similar community education and research on the ground there, trying to, uh, you know, attribute what is causing the decline in the dogs, and then actually putting some very strategic methods to try and turn that around. Some of our major achievements include you know, building the largest rehab facility for painted dogs anywhere in Africa in Zimbabwe. We also undertook the world first of releasing wild-born dogs that were smuggled and on the illegal trade, rehabbed through captivity, but then trained them to go back into the wild on an island called Starvation Island in the middle of Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe, and that was a world first to basically get dogs to learn through boot camp how to be dogs again.
0: So, sorry, they were being trafficked, were they?
2: Yeah, often, you know, obviously... Illegal wildlife trade is you know, one of the biggest illegal trades in the world behind drugs. So some individuals can often find dens if they exterminate the adults due to the fact they see them as a threat to the livestock or something like that, then try and on sell the puppies. And there has been evidence that we've uncovered that there is a, an illegal trade even in dogs. So we've actually uh, intercepted a lot of those and they had to return the dogs back to the wild where they belong
0: what are they being trafficked for? Are they using their, their pelts or their fur or their, is it a, a medicinal purpose that they... Um,
2: neither. Of, often to other collectors and to some other wildlife organisations or sanctuaries that want dogs that um, obviously don't go through the correct channels or through other captive registered captive breeding institutions that have, you know, keep stud books and, and know exactly where the animals are from and those animals are actually... insurance population, and ambassadors for their wild cousins, they're taking them from the wild and fulfilling people's need to collect or or have them.
0: With your work as far as the rehabilitation centre is concerned, have you had to purchase land there?
2: The land is through our associate company that we work with called Painted Dog Conservation, and we have a lease through the Forestry Commission to allow us to operate on there. So it's a 99-year lease.
0: Can you tell us about who your work involves as far as the community and local involvement?
2: Sure. So we work with all the wildlife sectors of the government in each country. So Zimbabwe Parks and Wildlife in Zimbabwe and also Zambian Wildlife Authority in Zambia. Obviously having the government support and wanting us to help do the work is fantastic. Then we work with projects and programs that are approved that are already undertaking uh, anti-poaching activities, uh, and education with the local and rural communities. And obviously we then attach into the research and bringing all those chapters together so that um, you know you can't just approach one issue from one direction. You've got to cover every single area. So you need the community to see that there's worth in, in saving the dogs. You need the government and the wildlife authorities. You need to help them get that value in, in the system and doing their work and we have to put people on the ground to help do that as well. So.
0: And when you put people on the ground, uh, you're employing locals, is that right?
2: Correct. We employ local people and ironically some of our best anti-poaching team members are former poachers. So they know how a poacher thinks and they know how, how and when and why they would set snares where they do and it's great to see a person that obviously didn't have any other alternative to trying to feed themselves, but through our programs, they've actually come full circle. and Now they're protectors of the the wildlife they were once poaching and, you know, it gives them some worth and they see value in the animals because they're getting a a new outlook on the value of the animal. So we also then involve other community members and it becomes, you know, a community-based activity that we oversee and we implement.
0: You partake strategically on education. You go to all the schools. You make sure there's an education element to your work. There's the -the on-the-ground protection and rehabilitation of the actual dogs. There's art projects set up as well. Can you tell us about the art projects?
2: Sure. So we have a lot of community development projects. So both in Zimbabwe and Zambia, we have artisans that are turning snare wire back into sculptures and beaded jewellery and beaded sculptures as well that we pay them for through a fair trade system then we on sell them to different contexts that we have around the world and a lot of the items we actually put through our own fundraising events and we auction them off at fundraising night so that gives them, them some worth we're also involved with a textiles company where we've actually employed 20 families through our involvement so it's 20 families that are now getting a wage and don't need to find alternative ways of earning an income i.e poaching that's again they're paid well for their goods and then we can on sell it around the world so someone gets something of value that's come from deep within the the bush from families that um, really really need it so it develops their skills gives them a good financial return and then we have a, a beautiful item that people want and the money then can be returned back to conservation so it becomes a full circle
0: it is, um, it's a beautiful fusion, isn't it, or cohesion yes. when this happens. I mean, you went over there seeing the plight of the painted dog and wanting to do something about it, and your work has, is very profound in so many ways as far as helping the community, helping their economies and such forth. Can you just enlighten us or paint a picture or describe the reality and the difficulty involved in conservation work in Africa, what you actually deal with, as a reality, day-to-day?
2: Sure. Obviously, we need to try and keep everyone's interest involved in what we do. My colleagues come from all over the world, from United States to the UK and Australia, and we can't go just go over there as an expatriate and say, this is the issue, what's happening with your wildlife, and we're going to solve everything. They need to come along and be part of that journey. Uh, it is their land. They are their animals, so we have to be vested in making them aware of the need to make a change and then taking them along for the journey so that they know that it's worthwhile. So, you know, you're always collaborating not only with the government, you're collaborating with local chiefs, you're collaborating with local villagers, and then you're collaborating with individuals. You've also got the hunting fraternity on the other side where we need the balance between what outcome they've been approved to, whether or not you agree with it. So, yeah, it's a real balance. And then you've got the local lodge owners and, and their interest in tourism and the work that you do. And then you've got other, obviously, our sponsors and other conservation groups that are assisting us, so they need their involvement. So it becomes almost an HR management task to be able to allow you to do some of the on-the-work work you know, on the ground work. So it's not just a simple thing as, I'm going to say this species and these are my methods and I believe that's the correct way to go. You have to bring everyone on board and that I think in itself is the biggest challenge. We focus on a single species, the African painted dog, but in reality we're there for all animals, great and small. You know, with my work in Zambia we're looking at all the carnivores and, you know, we'll lend our hand to sick or injured elephants, to giraffe, to you know helping communities with AIDS awareness or crop rotation or water conservation or taking a local person from the community many of them were taken from Mfui for example a very small village uh, in Zambia and they've now gone on to complete their veterinary school studies so they are registered vets and got their PhDs as well and, and they're studying abroad in Montana State University that's what we aim for and you know if you can save a single species, for example, in your lifetime, I think uh, you know, you've you achieved something great, but it is quite risky.
0: You are listening to 3CR Freedom of Species. We are chatting with John Lemon. Chairman of Painted Dog Conservation. Recently the Painted Dog Conservation family were seriously challenged with the tragic news that a dear colleague and friend of theirs had been brutally murdered in Zimbabwe. Many condolences there.
2: Yes, sadly we lost a dear friend and colleague and, and something's really changed my life forever through a, a very violent and brutal axe attack in Zimbabwe recently. And Yuri. Really Count what you've been through in your life and, and where you want to go with it, but when it comes down to it, he would have wanted us to continue doing what we're doing, so it actually makes us want to strive harder to achieve. So, a lot of people go and have said to us, You know, do you have to uh, reevaluate what you're doing and stop it? It's like, um, No, this is actually a, a driver for us to, to strive harder. So, yeah, I guess you just got to um, take the good with the bad and, and honour people's memories.
0: That was a tune by Passenger called Coins in a Fountain. You are tuned in to 3CR 855 AM, Freedom of Species. We are chatting with John Lemon, who is the chairman of the Painted Dog Conservation Group. You are about to start the second tour with Kevin Richardson. Can you tell us why his story is relevant to your work? How did the Painted Dog and the Lion, so to speak, collaborate <coughs> In your work. (laughs) Yeah, very
2: very good question. And through our work in Zambia, we actually cover the full gamut of carnivals. And sadly, the majestic lion, the king of the jungle, so to speak, is now in dire straits as well. And some of the work that Kevin does, obviously, you know, he's a a well-known TV figure in some of the amazing interactions he has with lion and hyena in his captive facility. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about Kevin is that's the way in which he gets people engaged in the cause. And he's very strong and probably one of the leading people in fighting the canned hunting industry. And just a brief thing, canned hunting is breeding lions in captivity to be on sold, often through the petting parks in, in South Africa. People tell the the public that they've been going on to be, uh, into conservation parks and you know, by you patting it, it's actually helping conservation. Those cubs then go on to hunting camps, and they can be shot at a fee in often areas smaller than an acre um, by people willing to pay astronomical amounts to kill such a majestic animal. It isn't illegal; it's just unethical. And Kevin and I had the same mantra on that and goal to try and stop canned hunting. Sadly, there's more lines now in captivity than there are in the wild and this great majestic beast like the painted dog may go extinct in our lifetime. It's something that we bond really well together and we toured Australia in 2013 and were able to raise over $100,000 in three nights. Dollar for dollar went straight back into conservation into our work in Africa and also assisting Kevin in undertaking an undercover investigation into canned line hunting so we could prove some of the theories that we had. Um, interesting enough, our patron Tony Park also wrote Kevin's biography, so there was that link there as well.
0: Can you tell us how that campaign against canned hunting is going?
2: Sure. Obviously, it's it's grown and you've probably heard now of the Global March for Lions and we actually led the one here in Perth, but that's right round the globe. And Kevin being one of the main speakers, particularly in Johannesburg, where they had the, the largest turnout and that relationship's growing. We also, through another organisation, heard of two lion cubs on the streets in Spain, in Madrid, um, being used in the petting industry. They're malnourished, had cataracts and a range of other medical conditions. They were future victims of the canned hunting industry as well. We, through our membership for Painted Dog, um, raised over $11,000 over a couple of weeks, which was enough to get those animals from that, Terrible outlook through a rehab facility and then onto Kevin's sanctuary in South Africa. We then paid for the operations for cataracts on one of the smaller line called George, the Georgian army. They ended up uh, being named, and we were able to name them. And you know they're going to become real ambassadors. They're obviously future being malnourished and well underweight for their size, and they they were doomed and they would have been sold on. We've now saved them. They've become great ambassadors for the anti-can line hunting campaign, and obviously they're going to have a great future at Kevin's. So it's a multifaceted outcome as well. You know, one thing, why are you saving two line cubs off the street, being, yes, because we could, you know, and their two little lives are, uh, are now flourished, and they're going to have a really great outcome at Kevin's facility. They're never going to be able to be released back into the wild, but... They're great ambassadors and uh, people have globally have become really attached to the, to these two line cubs and their story and that gives us a vehicle to, you know, do our work on top of. So we've had yeah, quite a very good relationship and we've actually been fighting the legislation as well to stop Australia importing line trophies and parts through putting in appeals to the government and as you're probably aware that's now come through so we're no longer importing any of those goods into Australia. So yeah several outcomes um, from our relationship so far.
0: Have there been any other developments globally that you can tell us about as a result of the campaign against hunting?
2: Oh, there's quite a few. Obviously, we're only really aware of what we've been involved with, but Kevin has, you know, what he's going to unveil because obviously uh, he'll be with us again uh, in the next few weeks, the 15th, 17th and 19th of June across Australia. But um, he'll be unveiling some of the, the recent progressions in where we're at with that some of the things through my work in zambia and our research we actually were able to stop line hunting in the wild for you know over 18 months sadly it's been reinstated now but hopefully enough for the population to recover
0: and why uh, has it been sorry to interrupt why has yes, it been reinstated
2: I okay a lot of pressures for you know the hunting fraternity and people having different vested interests in what the worth is of wildlife and obviously being a pure conservationist, often hard to see hunting to myself, you know, it it turns my stomach, but there is a place in the weird balance of conservation in the fact that if people no longer see a value at all in protecting the wildlife, they won't. And, you know, it it is a strange mix. I, I struggle with it myself daily. I wish there was no such thing as hunting and I wish that people no longer had that need to take an animal's life to display it in a trophy room but sadly it still uh, exists today if the ecology is done well and they can say that they can harvest off a particular number of animals and that money then goes back into conservation and real conservation then i think you have an argument it's just if that happens every time in every country in which they practice hunting is something to be discussed i guess
0: they're speaking to a fundraising tour that you're about to embark upon with Kevin. So yes. the Painted Dog Conservation Group and yes. uh, Kevin Richardson. Can you tell us about that and what we'd expect on the night?
2: Sure. We're having three functions. Uh, on the 15th of June in Perth at the Hyatt Hotel, on the 17th of June in Sydney at the Crown Plaza at Coogee and then the 19th of June at the Park Hyatt in Melbourne. Uh, tickets are $100 each and we'll have our patron and MC Simon Reeve from Channel 7. Uh, we'll be doing the Perth and Sydney events. The night includes all your food and drinks and you know, I'll be doing an overview of what the work we do. Kevin will be presenting on his work and then we'll have an a African auction including special items such as volunteering at Kevin's sanctuary and African photos, artwork, books, jewellery, textiles and much, much more. And dollar for dollar, everything we raise through those three nights will go back into our projects in Zambia and obviously assist Kevin in some of his anti-can hunting um, campaigns.
0: People, if they can't get to the evening, John, can they volunteer for your group in other ways or how else can they help?
2: Yeah, obviously people can go to our website, www.painteddogconservation.ii.net.au so it's a long one, our facebook page and obviously there's different ways in which they can get involved so become a member of our association if they want to come i'm actually leading a tour from monday this week coming week uh, two weeks to zambia to showcase all of our work and have a day off before we start the tours with kevin there are so many ways you know they can buy goods they can donate money they can adopt a pack they can regularly donate to what's called doggy dollars so like a, a workplace giving project so Many, many different ways. So, if they want to look at our website or Facebook page to get involved, if anyone's interested in booking for the Kevin Richardson nights, our email address also is Lemon J, so L E M O N J at AussieMail O Z E M A I L dot com dot au.
0: Freedom of Species is a show about animals for animals listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. We will now go to our phone chat that I had with Kevin Richardson. Kevin has found a way to manifest a trusting bond and relationship with lions and hyenas on his sanctuary, one that is not mastered by the fear and threat of dominating sticks and chains. His sanctuary has also become an awareness project for the issue of canned hunting, which Kevin campaigns strongly against. Thank you so much for making time for our program again, Kevin.
1: It's my pleasure. It's great to be back on.
0: What is the purpose of the Kevin Richardson Wildlife Park, where you have 27 lions, I understand, in captivity?
1: Okay. well, actually, we have slightly more than that uh, currently because we've acquired in the last couple of months, six or so months, two rescue lion cubs from Spain. That were part of an industry, a petting industry, and a photographic industry, and I was asked by the campaign against canned lion hunting to please take them on. It was never my intention to increase the numbers, but you know, in that particular case, I decided to make an exception. The 27 lions prior to that in my care were all lions that came from a previous facility that I, I was involved with, and they were all born in captivity and my feeling was that I couldn't turn my back on them when I decided to uh, part ways with my previous uh, partner and hence uh, decided to take them to a new sanctuary whereby we would continue to not breed the lions and make a stand against canned lion hunting and try and make people aware of the pitfalls of cub petting in South Africa.
0: Lions have gone from a wild animal to what has been referred to as livestock. In South Africa, describe to us what canned hunting is and how that transition from wild animal to livestock has actually happened.
1: That's an interesting one because some time ago, the Minister of Environment in South Africa decided to take on the canned lion hunting industry, and so brought. So there was a court proceedings that took place whereby the predator breeders, who are pro, obviously breeding these lions for commercial gain, i.e. tourism, cup petting, and then ultimately sometimes they land up in the hunting, trophy hunting, were ruled basically against. And they appealed the decision and this went to the appeals court and basically the predator breeders won on the reasoning that the captive bred lions have no place, they hold no place in lion conservation, in wildlife conservation, and that they should actually... Fall within the jurisdiction of the Department of Agriculture, so in one you know judgment, basically lion moved from something that the Department of Environmental Affairs should be looking after, in other words, nature conservation to agriculture and that 's kind of where they 've been uh, they 've landed up in the, the past few years as we all fight against it canned lion hunting is a very interesting term because the Department's taken a view that if a lion is met with only certain attributes, or in other words, is hunted, and certain boxes are ticked, then it's a canned lion hunt. But these are are really vague, and there's no real definition as to what it is. and and so people um, you know abuse that and uh, say that they're hunting lions ethically, but in actual fact it's just a version of canned lion hunting. And for me, canned hunting is really, a definition whereby if something is guaranteed, it's in the can. That's where the term came from. So whether the lion is hunted in a two by two enclosure or a thousand hectares, if the lion's sole purpose is to be put there to be hunted, uh, in my opinion, it's a, it's a canned lion. And the same goes for you know these lions that are human imprinted or captive bred, have not been, re- have not you know placed foot in the wild other than 24 hours before they are hunted. But the departments of Review in South Africa now that that's not all of a sudden miraculously not considered a canned lion. It suddenly moves from a canned lion once it leaves its enclosure and gets put in a wilderness area. It's now suddenly a wild lion all of a sudden, which I cannot agree with. The thing uh, that I always say is that one needs to understand the difference between farming livestock for consumption and that of farming lions for ultimately consumption too but albeit a trophy These welfare issues that are at play here, we've probably got better standards in, in many respects for the livestock as opposed to the lions at this point in time it's a free for all and yes the process is really just breeding these lions commercially, exploiting them in terms of the photographic tourism, then under the guise that it's conservation when we know this is not true because that's precisely the point that the predator breeders won their case the one they appeal on is that uh, it's got nothing to do with conservation but yet a lot of the facilities will argue vehemently that uh, this is a conservation effort and proceeds go towards conservation so yeah the point being is it's a it's commercial gain the facilities are breeding these animals for people to come and pet but unwittingly contributing to the end result, which is a lion being trophy hunted. And when you actually uh, make people aware of what the potential is, they're horrified. So what I'm saying is that if this is law and it is legal, that these facilities should be made or compelled to give all the facts and tell people, well, if you pet this lion up, this is the possibility. It is going to potentially land up here, there or um, somewhere else associated with this of this industry.
0: You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Kevin Richardson, popularly known as the Lion Whisperer, and a hardworking activist against the industry of canned hunting. Kevin is explaining to us, when you scratch the surface of a lot of the tourist trade that deals with patting of lion cubs in South Africa or walking with lions, when these places claim to be based on conservation, how this is truly false and misleading.
1: I have not heard yet of one case of a successfully uh, released uh, captive bred lion into the wilderness areas, quite simply because... We face a huge problem in South Africa with habitat loss. We don't have habitat just to simply put all these thousands and thousands of captive-bred lions into. So, therefore, it doesn't make logical sense for people to be saying, well, all these lions that you pet, and I must just tell you that there's 200 farms in South Africa that breed lion, and there's probably, no one really knows, but there's an estimate between 6,000 and 8,000 captive lions currently, You cannot for one moment tell me that the majority of those lions are landing up in wilderness areas when we are fighting so hard to keep wilderness areas wild for our wild populations. That's really the issue.
0: There's about 20,000 lions living in the wild in South Africa in less than 20% of their former range due to human lion conflict, poaching, etc., Given the relentless nature of these challenges, do you feel lions living ideally in the wild, which you're aiming for, is actually a possibility? Or is it more likely we will resign to lions living within protected sanctuary parks?
1: Well, that would be a sad day for lions, I must just say, if that was the case. And yes, it could well be the future or the writing on the wall that we only... You know, our children's children only get to see lions in zoos and these make-believe parks. But I must just correct you on one thing there, that there's not, not an estimation of 20,000 lions in South Africa. That is in Africa. That's the total wild lion population that we have on this planet. That is what the estimates and some scientists would argue that it's even less than that, because they're uh, saying that wild managed populations, which we have in South Africa, which form part of all these little managed reserves contribute to that number. Therefore, there might actually only be as little as 15,000 truly wild lions left roaming the plains of Africa. And yes, habitat loss and habitat conservation and protection is a hard one because obviously with a burgeoning human population, habitat gives way to development and shopping centres and roads, etc., etc., next that's to the demise of the lion. So some would say we are all fighting a losing battle. But I, I do disagree. I think where there's hope, we are not at a situation whereby, you know, they're critically endangered. And we, that's all the more reason to act now and to say, well, if they are going to be landing up in these managed parks like we have in South Africa, and in fact, in South Africa, the, it's been a management success because our lion, our wild lion population numbers have remained relatively stable if not increase, whereas in other parts of Africa, there's been a rapid decline, such as in Tanzania. You need a holistic approach to how one would manage lines in Africa. You cannot isolate each country and, and treat it on its own. And that's really what we're all getting together and, and throwing around.
2: Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about.
0: 855 AM. Tune in and listen up. You are listening to Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Kevin Richardson. Kevin is talking about the role of his sanctuary.
1: Quite frankly, my sanctuary can only at this point in time aid in education. And some people would say, obviously, what I do is controversial because I'm interacting with the, the animals, and that's purely from a perspective of giving them some kind of a quality of life or existence in captivity and utilising, obviously, the publicity to get on you know, stations like this and tell the broader audience, hey, this is the dilemma. If we don't do something about it, we may not see wild lions in 20 or so years.
0: How important is it to have these species living in the wild, Kevin?
1: It's very important because lions form part of a, an ecology and an ecosystem. And without your apex predators, your ecosystems fall apart, you know. Mm-hmm. So we all know that we can put fences up and micromanage things, but with fences comes extensive management and we don't as humans get it right always because we cannot mimic nature. It's almost impossible. So yeah, we could, we could take the view that lions are not so important, but one must also realize that in South Africa, they are a, a very big reason as to why tourists come here. And, for example, we are losing our rhino at a rapid rate. Elephants are being poached at a rapid rate. Lions are heading for a, a disaster. What are we going to tell people? Come to South Africa and view two of the big five, because we only have two species left. I don't think that's very attractive. So mm-hmm. we must be very careful about you know, turning tourism away due to our, our ways.
0: Is it just a market demand response that you're after that will actually stem the tide against canned hunting?
1: Well, I think it is only going to come, unfortunately, from international pressure because it seems that our local government has almost taken a stance of pro-hunting or pro-captive breeding for hunting. So that that is a bit worrying. Rather than saying, listen, we value our tourism, in this country, which generates far more income. We value the hunting industry higher. So I think from international pressure, then one is forced to make some decisions. If tourists say, well, we're boycotting there because we don't don't agree with this whole uh, industry, um, suddenly then ears are pricked. Um, Other things like, you know, banning carrying trophies on airlines, which is becoming a thing. And, you know, decisions made by countries such as yourselves. Or the banning of import of uh, you know trophies or body parts of lions sends a strong message, a clear message that Australia doesn't think it's right.
0: For someone that's been brought up in South Africa, have you got any understanding of the trophy hunter, like what the attraction is?
1: Well, I actually had a volunteer that was a psychologist that came to my facility not so long ago, and he wrote an article on the psychology of the hunter, and and it was. He, he delved into that, and it was quite an interesting read, but really uh, based on insecurities and based on uh, self-indulgence and all these things that he basically put down to in his in his, uh, in his little article that he wrote. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to make sense as to why, why one would sport hunt or trophy hunt a lion, other than for... Um, reasons needed are in, in, in controlling populations or in controlling numbers in managed reserves, but that is by far a lesser, d- to a lesser degree needed. Whereas we can see that the trophy hunting industry is burgeoning and that there's a real demand for these hunters to come out and shoot a lion. And so it seems to be in fanaticism and pure ego. <laughs>
0: I thought I'd take a moment and comment on the article that Kevin referred to by psychologist Alexander Angelou, published in New Europe. I will post the link on the webpage for this program today. Alexander makes correlations between the current societal problems in which we have such a demand for people to be 100% in control and the exponential rise in trophy-canned hunting. And I quote from his article, boasting about killing an animal isn't a sign of strength, it's a sign of insecurity. He also goes on to explain that the problem when they do start getting this sense of power and security by killing an animal, that it is kind of a habitual thing. They need to keep getting that feeling of power and security in this dysfunctional and cruel manner. Anyhow, please read it. His words are a lot more articulate than mine. Aside from this psychological fueling of the trophy hunting trade, I asked Kevin whether hunters themselves were also being duped into it, thinking that they were doing it for the benefit of conservation.
1: Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, because some of these institutions are duping people into believing that that the lion they're shooting is a truly wild lion. But no, because any person who has access to the internet can figure out very quickly that there's no such thing. Because in South Africa, there's only 8 to 10 permits issued every year for wild lion hunts, okay? That would be lions being hunted in parks such as the Kruger Park, Shishloum, Falozi, and the Kalahadi Transfrontier Park. So that's only 8 to 10. And we know that there's about 1,000 permits for trophy lions issued every year. So if you're not one of those 8 or 10 people, then you have been shooting a captive lion. So surely one needs to understand that I didn't shoot the lion in the Kruger Park and I didn't shoot it in... The Falahari, but I shot it in some reserve in, in the Limpopo or in the northwest province. Oh, okay, this lion must have been captive bred. And I'm not saying all captive bred lions are hand raised. So don't get me wrong there, because I think a lot of people like to state that as a fact, that every lion bred in captivity has been hand raised, petted by humans, imprinted on humans, and then, you know, flogged off to the hunting industry. Some people in, you know, the Far more rural parts of Afri- in South Africa are breeding lions specifically to be hunted. So they let them grow up with their mothers, and then only take them away. And those lions are as you know ferocious as any, but they still are relying on humans for their food and their watering. And they, le- they learn to live in a closed quarter. And then one day comes when they're separated from the pride, and then released into a greater area whereby they are tracked down and shot. So yeah, you know, I don't believe that every hunter is duped into believing that he's shooting a wild lion. I think they just need to do their homework.
0: There's no painted dog in sight, I think, on your website, Kevin. Why have you chosen mm. the Painted Dog Conservation Group to collaborate with and indeed um, embark on a, another speaking tour with?
1: Well, it was, yes, I mean, you're quite right, because wild dog faces are even grimmer existence in South Africa in terms of habitat, because they need such vast tracts of land, and they're very difficult to keep, because they simply just break out and dig out. But I was approached by PDC, and we kind of got talking about how we could benefit each other, and uh, they've got a very passionate thing going for the wild dog, the painted dog, and, and I'm very passionate about the canned hunting industry. And we decided that it was a good fit where I could help them raise money and people could come and hear me talk and get to meet me. And so it was a win-win. I would get my message out and they would, you know, obviously benefit uh, financially. So, and also proceeds from the thing can be used to fight the fight. So, yeah, it it seems like an unlikely fit, but it's tended to work well based on the last trip. Um, This one, this one's a, to be even better.
0: With the lion, is that it's the big fight, really, isn't it? It reflects what's what's happening with the lion, is happening to countless species around the world. And let's hope, because of the the lion's reputation as you know the ultimate apex predator, that um, your work will will trickle down and affect how we approach predator issues around the world.
1: Well, that's quite right, and it doesn't just stop at predators, because. If we protect habitat, and habitat is suitable to keep or house lions, then the habitat has to be suitable to house uh, prey species. And in other words, we would be making a concerted effort to protect herbivores. So yes, it does have a trickle-down effect. And the same, the same problems that face lion, uh, certainly face leopard, and other species of large carnivore. And in fact, hyenas fit into that category, spotted hyenas too. So, you know, this whole habitat issue and humans encroaching and, and then the retaliations and then obviously the sport hunting, uh, trophy hunting, they're all intertwined and interconnected. So And, you know, people ask me, why lion? And it's just really because I fell into lions. Maybe if I had fallen into leopard, it would have been me talking to you on the phone about leopard. But uh, nevertheless, it is what it is, and and I'm passionate about it, and I've grown extremely passionate about it over the past uh, 16 and a half years. So we've still got a long way to go, but we're certainly getting traction in terms of people listening, and that's a start.
0: That wraps up our second interview with Kevin Richardson, popularly known as the Lion Whisperer. And also we heard from John Lemon from the Painted Dog Conservation Group. Hopefully it tantalised the mental taste buds to find out more. So please go to the fundraising cross-speaking tour. If you'd like to find out more, and there is a lot more to find out about their inspiring, amazing work, which not only helps the species that they've made it their mission to protect, but also has profound positive effects on the local communities over there and indeed wildlife. Hey, y'all, this
1: is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe
0: now. Some big news. All three of Queensland, Australia's racing codes will have their boards abolished. After a damning report into the live baiting scandal... The Premier made the announcement less than 24 hours after Inquiry Commissioner Alan McSporran tabled a report into the embattled greyhound racing industry in Australia on Monday. So the Premier has instructed Queensland Racing Minister Bill Byrne to abolish all boards of Racing Queensland. 3CR
1: listener is the genuine Australian, and the genuine Australian is duty-bound to defend freedom of species. Intellectually, morally, dinkum, blue, you know what to do. Subscribe and donate, donate and subscribe to 3CR Community Radio. Back them, knowing that the freedom of species you're backing may well be your own. This is Lawrence Pope, Victorian advocate for Animals, wishing
2: your species all the best.
0: It's radiothon time, so please keep animal advocacy activated on the airwaves. That's a 4A rating, in my view. Any spare cash you've got would be greatly appreciated, and it's tax-deductible. Please specify Freedom of Species as the show you are donating towards. You can ring the radio station directly. And pledge money. The number is 94198377. That's 03 94198377. Or indeed, you can donate via the website, actually, which is 3cr.org.au. My name is Ariane Wallach, the director of the Dingo for Biodiversity project. Please do support freedom of species.
1: Hi, everyone out there. I'm Kevin Richardson. If you could all Give Freedom of Species your support. That would be really wonderful. Thank you.
0: So that wraps up the show for today. Next week we have a big Radiothon show, so please tune in. I'd like to thank very much Kevin Richardson and John Lemon from Painted Dog Conservation and Ange Lemon and also Edwina Thring. I'd also like to thank the musician's passenger. And if you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter, or via the website. Tunewise, taking us out is a song by Melody Moon called For the One. Have a great week. Tell me yourself. In your own words. In your own.